Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 45 of the podcast, the topic is the startup studio for manufacturing. Our guest is Renan Devilliers, CEO at OSS Ventures, who is based in Paris, France. In this conversation, we talk about co-creating the software bricks that manufacturers need to achieve autonomy using a venture building strategy. We discuss exciting European digital manufacturing startups, how the Tesla way might become as influential as the Toyota production system, and much more. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by Futurist Trondarne Windheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast with industrial conversations that matter. Renaud, how are you today? Very good, and you? Thank you for having me. Sure. Yeah, I'm doing doing very well. Uh, Bruno, you uh, you were you are I guess you are an economist. You're always an economist, um, and then you co-founded a bunch of uh, of uh, startups. You had some time in San Francisco to ponder uh, this world of venture, and and then you went in all all in yourself, and you're now in Paris, and you have founded this very interesting startup studio. Um, Tell me a little bit about your path to manufacturing and also your part to digital, uh, path to digital and to, to startups. Yeah, sure. Uh, first, thank you for having me. And yeah, I started as an economist and then I decided to go a little on the real side of the economy. <laughs> and uh, I worked for like six years in operations in manufacturing, adding very operational, like head of operations, head of planning, supply chain. Um, in luxury, in aeronautics, and, and other verticals. Um, and it was after that that I went to San Francisco and co-created a startup that I was lucky enough to, to sell uh, to Google, um, who was my, my primary investor. And what hit me was a kind of like two-step punch. <laughs> the first step was, holy moly, those guys in San Francisco are really on a different planet tech-wise. And speed of iteration, the, the depth of thinking um, was really out of this world. That was the, the first part of the punch. And the second part of the punch is that you, you go to San Francisco, you go to, to everyone who knows tech, and they talk to you about that awesome future of delivery, future of retail, future of space, future of transportation, and nobody talks about future of operations. And operations is 20% of the world GDP. It's 40% of the people, like all the workforce, it's 40% of those people. And and nobody talks about that. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to deep dive in that. I'm going to look uh, on what can be done in tech in operations. 
Well, and you you went uh, deep deep on it. We'll we'll get a little bit into w- what you ended up creating, but let's first uh, uh, just a look at the look at the industry because you said, you know, no startups are into operations. First of all, what is the opportunity? How, how many sort of production sites are there uh, where there could be uh, startups operating, or or where there you know could be software or, you know, a Silicon Valley method could be applied where yeah. it isn't applied. So, so basically that there, there is that great McKinsey study that looks at the future of digitization in manufacturing. And so manufacturing is 20% of the world GDP. And McKinsey said that about 25% of that will be software by 2035. So it means that in 10 years, you get five whole points of GDP. <laughs> and for the record, food delivery is like two points of GDP. And look at how many startups there are in there. <laughs> and, and so the opportunity is massive. And there, uh, one, one number that I like is that there are, there are 55K production sites of more than 100 people in France alone. And in the world, it's more like uh, 200K uh, production sites, which is humongous when you think about it. And those guys, they have budgets. Like they are, they are waiting for you to give them software to make their life simpler, but nobody goes. And so when I say nobody goes, is that if you go to AngelList, do it. You go to AngelList, you put manufacturing and look at the number of startups. And then you get all AngelList. And so startups who are working in manufacturing, it's 0.7% of all startups for 20% of the GDP, which makes no sense. Right? The, the market, the gap is huge. It's interesting the way you look at it as an economist, because you know th- there obviously could be some discrepancies in here. I mean, a lot of software startups maybe don't announce that they're working on manufacturing. They may still have some manufacturing clients, but but your presumption still holds. You know, if you are a startup that's not a hundred percent focused on manufacturing, or you can't even put the manufacturing keyword in AngelList, you're not all that focused on manufacturing. And we know this, both of us, because we have discovered that you know a focus on manufacturing is is fairly specific you can't just make that up it's not just you know oh it's one of the sectors we're focusing on it's a it's a pretty serious dedication so that is interesting uh, now how how do you think that's going to happen i mean there's a two uh, there's a two sides story to to this right there is you know the startups need to come into the space but there has, also has to be the demand because just the potential doesn't create the market it's, it's very true. Um, to me, there are three tidal waves that won't be stopped. And the only question is timing. But the three tidal waves are one, Tesla and SpaceX and the likes. So there are new disruptors coming to the physical world and coming hard to the physical world of manufacturing of retail. And they are changing everything. And so we can see um, empirically uh, 20% of all our clients at OSS are what could be defined as disruptive companies operating in manufacturing. And this will grow and grow and grow. And like 30 years ago, a little company called Toyota invented lean manufacturing. It was radically different from the organization of everyone. And in 10 years, everyone was doing lean. 
And what we are seeing is that in five to 10 years, everybody will be doing testism. And so they are thinking about putting software and understanding that. So that's the first tidal wave. Like the distributors are coming and, and they, are, they are taking the market with them. The, the second tidal wave is generational. <laughs> Uh, sorry to be brutal, but the boomers are going to be extent at some point, and they are the ones actively pushing against digitization, and they are losing and losing and losing. We are seeing them getting fired. We are seeing them struggling with recruiting new talents, and so having to deal with disruption and software and everything. So the second is there is a whole generation that just didn't want to deal with software and those guys are getting actively pushed out of the organizations. So that's the third one, the second one. And the third one, which is very interesting, I think, is that if you look at manufacturing, manufacturing that has a direct touch with the end consumer, they have a five years lead in this digitization compared to B2B. Why? Because the consumer asks for Agility asks for transparency, asks for more and more and more. And so those companies have to adapt because the consumer is changing. And the consumer use Amazon and the GAFAM. And so they are used to extreme convenience. And you cannot do extreme convenience without software. So B2C manufacturing are already on the verge of really pushing and, and creating that market. And we are seeing the first B2B that are lagging behind and coming there. And so those are the three tidal waves that, that make it so that in, in 10 to 15 years maximum, everything will have changed. And so the software that goes with that change is coming up. Well, there's a lot to pick up here, but you, you say everything will have changed. What are some of the I guess, uh, lower hanging fruits that, that are changing that you are picking up on? I would say that the, the, the first, the lowest hanging fruit is repetitive intellectual task automation. So let me take an example. One of the companies that we, that we created is automating visual inspection, quality visual inspection. In luxury, 30% of all people working in the luxury sector are full-time quality inspectors. <laughs> that is peak, repeatable uh, intellectual task. And that is very much automatable by software. And that is the lowest hanging fruit. I would say that the highest hanging fruit, what will come to eventually, is the shop floor guy like working on the shop floor, being more of a coder, managing machines and managing the, the software and the parameters of the machines rather than acting physically on the physical world. So shop floor guy, more as a manager of machines rather than doer of things. And so when you get those two, you get zero repeatable intellectual task and the guy on the shop floor being a coder, it gives you a very different take on manufacturing. 
So now what is it going to take to get there? Because it, there, there's a step change between those two sort of use cases, I, I guess. And, and for sure, you know, the shop floor, now you're talking about, um, I guess, what traditionally is called manual work or it's factory work. So this is the, the factory worker on the shop floor. And you, you want them to be autonomous, essentially. This is the holy grail of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, it's what Karl Marx talked about. This is, this is big stuff, right? This is essentially freeing the worker. What is that going to take? So one of my favorite sentences is that the, the future is already there. It's just unevenly spread out. <laughs> and so if you look, for example, at, uh, if you look at Lego, uh, like Lego, the, the, the kid's toy, Lego, they're already there. And they did it all. And then you have 70% of all the factories in the world and they're not there at all. And what I fundamentally think is that there will be patches of value and software that is very easy to put and cultural changes. And people will look at those lighthouses like Lego or like uh, Schneider Electric. Uh, they will look at those lighthouses that say, this is like, this is a reality that is possible right now. And laggards will use the easiest software to plug in and the easiest cultural change to put, to try to catch up. And I have to say, a lot of companies will die out in the process. Like that McKinsey study said 40% of factories will die out in that process. But, you know, it's kind of nothing new because when Lean was invented, 30 years ago, in 10 years, everyone implemented, not 100%, but some patches of the lean methodology. And the ones who couldn't make it due to cultural, organizational complexity, they died out in the process. So it's just creative destruction, I guess. But is there something fundamentally different between what happens when you add digital to lean um, and the process of lean, which was a manual organizational principle more than it was a, well, it was a structuring principle, uh, but you were using pen and paper to implement it. So yeah. now you're adding digital to lean. What, what happens in that, in that transition? I, I think the, the, the most fundamental difference between the two is that the organizational complexity in implementing it is absolutely different. The, the middle manager role in Lean is much more of a coach of a system and a thinker of a system and coach of the people and, and whatnot. And, and there, is, there is a toolbox. So it positioned the middle manager as central in the system. Digital erase the middle manager you get the guy on the shop floor. Ideally, he has all the data needed. He has all the training needed. And there's no need for a middleman between information or decisions and the guy on the shop floor. And so where Lean was more of a cultural organizational revolution with the pivot being the middle guy, 
digital focus on the guy on the shop floor and the direction. And the middle guy, you know, one interesting stat is that uh, there is an index of digitization in factories. Uh, it's run by PwC, I think. And one key figure is that there are 40% less middle managers in very digitized factories and not, not substantially less shop floor workers. Like it's five to ten percent, but it's the middle layer that gets things up. But on but in this path, uh, Renaud, and, and and you know we'll get to some of the companies that you are creating uh, soon here. Isn't there an intermediate stage where uh, the people you're actually empowering aren't yet the factory workers? So you are empowering parts of the middle layer, maybe not. The, evenly the entire middle layer, but you're still empowering the operations engineers, the people who were designing the process in the first place, presumably are the ones that are first getting empowered with, with digital. They're just getting lean tools and steroids. But then you're saying there's a second stage where there's going to be less need, not just for the creators of these systems, but definitely to monitor the, you know, the, the ongoing operations. There's going to be a le- somehow, I mean, there's going to be some workers lost somehow, but you're saying it's it's going to be a middle squeeze more than a bottom out squeeze. Yeah, it's and, interesting. Yeah, it's and, interesting. Also, because of you know, in this robotics discussion, which is a little bit of a separate tone here, but you know, there's always this fear of like you know, all the workers of the world are going to get replaced by by robots. But but essentially, it seems to be that, you know that's not true either. There's there's several different waves here. And they're not all going to happen, you know, all at once. But this middle layer is going to definitely change. But but I'm assuming not overnight. No, not overnight. And actually, on the two tidal waves that I spoke about uh, earlier, the first one, automation of repetitive intellectual labor, that's the definition of the job of 80% of middle manager. They take information and complexity from the top and various data sources, and they spread it out to the shop floor worker. And that is going to be automated. One interesting thing that happened in the, in, in the 40s, 50s, is that when factories got automated, like before there was a guy with a hammer, and then there was a machine, um, it led to a squeeze of about 30% of the workforce. And actually what happened is that there were many, many more designers, there were many, many more people designing the, 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 the production process. There were many, many more people in the marketing. So basically, when we automated physical tasks, we invented intellectual tasks. And now that repetitive intellectual tasks are being automated, the thesis of almost everyone serious about AI, they say that what is going to rise is non-repetitive, so inventive and pathetic intellectual task. This is going to be on the rise. So for example, design, uh, user research, um, iterative processes, coaching, they're all on the rise. And most probably a factory will have much more non-repetitive intellectual tasks and much less repetitive. Now, one of the reasons I went into some detail with your thesis here is that it's extremely relevant for building new ventures, right? Because you you are a venture studio, and without a clear thesis on what you should be building, 
I would assume. Uh, so explain the model, right? Because so you started in 2018, I guess, with OSS Venture Builders, and, and you're not just building one one startup. You're actually fostering startups. W- what is the model here? So when I came back in Europe, uh, as a guy who made some money in the uh, in, in SF, I said I'm going to invest in tech startups in manufacturing because that's what I know, and I discovered the 0.7 percent figure and I said, okay, I'm going to lose my money. So I'm not going to do that. And I took my money instead and I said, okay, uh, let's be pragmatic. What does the world need? And so one, factories are not meeting tech people because tech people go on to create food delivery startups. So one, there is no meeting of the two worlds. One. Two, there's no systematic methodology of scanning for pain points of industrial and saying, no, this is, this is a pain point, but this is bad. This won't make a tech company that scales. Um, and so two was you need freedom in choosing what pain point to answer to. So that was two. And the third one was coming back from SF. I love Europe, but it's still lagging methodology wise, like five to 10 years. Um, and so I said, okay, so the world needs answering that. And so we created our model. And as far as we know, we are the only venture studio, uh, in manufacturing. Uh, there is one in logistics in Germany. Um, and so what we do is we go to factories, two to three factories per week with my team. I have designers and we say, look, we're going to scan for pain points and give you an honest feedback about your factory is going to be free, zero euro, but we scan for pain points. And so we have that ongoing basis of what are the pain points and what are the opportunities in factories like from the ground up. That's one. Second is when when we scan those pain points and one pain point is true in more than 70% of all factories and the competition is shitty. So like consulting firms with no tech capabilities or things like that. We say, and there is a, a, an existing budget. We say, hmm, okay, <laughs> we want to launch a new venture. And so we scan for the market and we see if we think we can build something that will scale and that we can build fast and that meets all of our criteria, one billion addressable market in Europe, blah, 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 blah. And so we have that list of what we call spaces and spaces are pain points. We know what to build. It's more than one billion market. We can deploy a full site in 48 hours and we pitch that to 10 industrial and at least four of them said, if you construct that, we pay you. Like that's the final test. It's, and so we are primarily a machine to kill ideas <laughs> out of 100 ideas about pre-made the cut. So we have those spaces validated. We take tech funders like about to launch a food delivery startup and they say, no, don't do that. Don't come there in operations and we give you those pain points, those clients. We give you uh, two or three coders full-time for six to nine months and one to two designers full-time for six to nine months. And we co-build until they reach 20 to 50K monthly recurring revenue. And we do that over and over and over again. At any given time, we have between two and three startups iterating with the clients to find the right product market fit and everything. And so far, we created 
nine companies, uh, a little over 100 people are working in those uh, nine companies. Uh, we have 200 industrial sites uh, live with at least one of the of the of the solutions um, and 16 one six uh, thousand daily users of all the solutions that we are doing. And so we are launching three to four startups a year. And uh, as it is our money that we are investing, we are taking 20% of each company and 80% are for the funders. So that's basically our model. And as far as we know, we are kind of the only comparable organization in manufacturing. It exists uh, in, in medical. It exists uh, with e-funders, company we, we like. It exists also with uh, Stutter Adventures, like Snowflake is out of a startup studio. And uh, you said there are corporates in there also, uh, but but not part of your. Mo- they're they're part of the investment board around it, or are they actually part of the funding team or 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 of the invest investors they, inside of the venture builders? They co-create with us because they see tech people iterating with them, and because we solve pain point for a fraction of the costs of any given like consulting company or or, or tech provider uh, because it's free until it works. Uh, so they work with us because of that. And the deal is we co-create and it has to be fast. And we are working with four to five of you at the same time to make sure that we don't build a, pr- a product for a single guy. And so that's that's the kind of deal. But the money is fully mine and one of my investors now. And it has like zero capital with the corporates, because we all love corporates, but they don't know how to innovate. And so governance-wise, you can run into issues if you put corporates in your category. So the corporates and or everyone else comes in later, because you you certainly, after a while, you, you put them up for, for investments more, more on the market and you seek uh, seed, seed funding for them. Yeah. What has the response been so far from the sort of the seed investors and the Series A investors uh, of the well, early companies you brought to them? Out of the nine companies, we we performed five Series A, um, one of which is a secret, which I find very cool. Uh, and uh, three of the startups chose to bootstrap because they hit several like they hit a good monthly revenue and a good growth. What we aim for usually is 40% growth quarter to quarter for any given startup. Um, and uh, software as a service, recurring, less than 10% professional fees uh, and um, less than 48 hours to deploy a whole production site. That Those are the metrics we are looking for and our price point is between 30K and 200K. And so basically when you, you show those numbers, to any venture capitalist and he says, okay, let's, let's talk. <laughs> so, so the market response was good. <laughs> can you, uh, so nine startups, can you just mention two or three of them and uh, sure. some of the more interesting problems that they're currently tackling? Uh, one that I love is Otomi. So Otomi, the, 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 the fundamental issue is that about uh, 20% of all the hours worked uh, on the shop floor are visual inspection. Uh, and the thing is that it is very much automatable, but it hasn't been automated yet. Why? Because computer vision projects are done by data scientists, 
nerds never go to the shop floor. There is no link with the actual shop floor. And actually to tag the data, you have to get operational knowledge and be good at operational knowledge. And, and there are some solutions, but very like for part of the issue, like you get that, that, that tagging platform, you get a model training. And everything is so complicated. You have to code your way and blah, 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 blah. And so as it's a, it's a big project, it's complicated, it's nerdy, it's techy. So nobody does it or they do it for very big projects. So when you have one guy at the end of the production line looking at pieces all day, you won't, you won't go to that guy and do a big machine learning project with five data scientists and blah, 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 and data lake or whatnot. So we de-expertized all of that. So basically, a blue collar on the production shop floor, he puts a camera, he scans the QR code, and he goes to an interface and he says, this is good, this is not good, this is good, this is not good, and I type like that, uh, auto-selection of the model, or oh, this is how the model is working yet, okay, I need more training, I do train, and everything is done by the guy on the shop floor, and he automates that part of the job himself without talking to any data scientists or I don't know what. And overall, it costs like 1,500 euro per month for, for, for such a use case. And it has zero interaction with the data scientist, zero interaction with the tech guy. And so it's like as simple as using a hammer. And so this is at core what we do. Like we bring the highest level of technology with design to de-expertize everything and bring it back to the shop floor. And that, that is exactly what we do. So that's, that's all to me. Um, so that, just to stay with that for one second. So th- that would seem to me to be perfect for a very small uh, and medium-sized business with a small shop floor, small factory that, that just has been hesitating, you know, going into digital investments because they've been approached by these consultants, perhaps, and these large vendors with, you know, these uh, annual fees for implement, you know, for just the software on premise, typically, and then, you know, an enormous implementation cost, and they have a small site. So, you, you know, you could sort of understand. You call them a resisting generation, but but you know, the, there's a reason why they've been resisting digital, right? Because the costs have been prohibitive the skills required they don't have so you could understand why why this hasn't happened across europe until these kinds of solutions start to appear all right give us give us another example yeah sure so uh, one that i that i that i absolutely freaking love is marketing so marketing we went to 70 factories that's seven zero 70 factories and we said but like there's that skill shortage and, and all those talks about skills in factories. Let's deep dive into that. And three things. First, you go to any production director, like any production director, any production manager, and you tell him, okay, look, show me the Excel file with your guys as lines and the things that you can do as columns. And he say, yeah, sure. And he opens the Excel. Why? <laughs> because there are what you, what are called applicant tracking systems or learning management systems. They are made for people wanting to learn like interactive communication. No, the guy in the shop floor, he wants to know is the machine XB13 
that guy can operate this because when that guy asks for a day out, can we make the XB13 machine work? So that's, that, that's the pain point of the guy or the manager on the field. And so there was no software for managing that. So we created the software that very simply maps the different, not skills, but occupations, like different things. And then we said, okay, but machine XB13 is a little, knowing metrology, is a little knowing how to read an industrial plan, is a little this and this and that. And so by tagging the skills on the thing people do, you infer what people can do and know based on their daily activities. And so by the managers being very happy to have a very simple tool to organize their teams and to know how polyvalence and like polyvalence works in their factories, we can infer skills. And I have verbal teams from uh, a big companies like 13 production sites and they are specialized in machining. Like that, that's their thing. They are like the best machining people on earth. And the HR chief said to me, ah, that's good because it's been 20 years I work here. And for the first time I know how many people know machining in my company. I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and so by capturing the usage on the shop floor, on such a basic thing as organizing my team and putting very techy mindsets of saying, I'm going to tag that and I'm going to have people and organize them. And I'm going then to organize trainings. I'm going to put reminders on trainings. I'm going to infer which type of skills are needed and whatnot. You get from operational to strategic HR management, which is a growl because when HR try to do it, they fail miserably because they try to impose uh, an HR process and the production guy is like, no, I, I don't know who knows how to do machining. I, I just need two people able to operate the XB13 machine. And so that's, that's typically the software service that we do. And those guys, they deployed more than 50 production cycle. It's not even a one-year-old company. And they're live in 50 factories. So that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that we do. Like very don't to earth operational, but also very tech and with scaling in mind. Hmm. I'm just curious. A lot of what manufacturing is about, you know, it affects, it affects, you know, big parts of the economy. Uh, you know, to the, to your point, you're an economist. Has there been any interest from the French government or others who are starting to see because that this is actually beyond just regular innovation. This is something that touches the value creation um, function in, in you know in, in a society in a, in, in a pretty interesting way. Have have people started to realize the kind of transformational potential of what you're doing? Well, we had very interesting talks uh, up until ministry level with various people interested in what we do. And I think it's my San Francisco newfound bias 
but I'm actively pushing away everyone that is not on a factory show floor. <laughs> uh, right, so the interest could take away your attention because yes. I mean, surely people are quite interested in this, but the question is what, what's the next step, right? So they could certainly sit there and, and, and converse with you forever. Yeah. So they wanted to invest. I said no. Yeah. Um, but they are like, I have to say that they are, they are really trying to understand the thing and that they are very helpful and not getting in the way I like at all. So it was a surprise because, you know, coming back from San Francisco, all the, the Europe bashing, like bureaucratic, but it was actually very helpful and very interesting. The, the one thing is, and also that I learned over there in SF, focus, 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 focus. Like, mm. Our key user is the guy on the shop floor. Like everything else is noise. The guy on the shop floor, like let's focus on the guy on the shop floor. Hmm. Short term, what, what what are some some things that you're seeing on the horizon? So you're obviously focused very much on the shop floor, but if you kind of look a year out or you're looking at your portfolio, you know, um, one, two years from now, you're going to grow, right? So you have nine companies now. You're going to, I'm sure you have, bunch of things in the you know in the pipeline what are some things you're excited about what, what do you think is going to change in this space and, and how fast is it going to change because you, you know your thesis is it's all going to change and you even at the beginning here you put some timelines on it and but they're decades timelines so I'm curious about the pace of that change and to, to what, what what role you know what are the goals you've set yourself in terms of being part of that chain? I know that you have some goals. I wanted you to sort of share those, and then largely, you know, when is everyone else, I guess, going to get on board in Europe or, or elsewhere? So there are there are three verticals that we are seeing are changing like at light speed, and the three verticals are new space, and space is all over the place and like reusable rockets and like several tens of thousands of satellites, it really made people think. <laughs> so it's changing a lot and we can see operations being pushed like 10 years worth of progress every two years. That's the, the first vertical. The second vertical is food. Foods with the push for traceability, the push for, uh, for, a more eco-friendly way of producing something, things and everything. That's the second that we are that we're seeing. And the third is medtech. Like medtech is on fire right now, and they are they understood that it's not just about the business model. You have to, to change the way you operate. Like they 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 did ramp up production ramp ups that they never did before. Uh, Sanofi was a national shame because they were they were done to them to, to create something in at the right time. And they have a big ego eat because of that. So we are seeing on vertical that on, on horizontals, there is a push for traceability that is going to change everything. Uh, the second is the supply chains are broken everywhere, like everywhere. Metal is plus hundred percent. They are they are like they are, they are stopping uh, car factories because of a one euro component. That's, that's how we are in the supply chains. So supply chains are going to take a hit and we think that supply chains are going to be much more resilient, designed to be resilient, much more local, uh, much more secular. So it's going to be interesting. 
Um, and the third thing is there are budgets everywhere and data everywhere to be leveraged in new operations. So if you take those vertical and those horizontals, uh, we want to be at the forefront of all of those. All of the verticals and horizontals that I, that I mentioned, it's like double digit rate of change on all of those. So it means that it's accelerating at a pace that is never seen before. And it's a very interesting time to work in manufacturing. And what we want to do is we want to position our, our, our startups, our verticals our, on things like that, that we know are at the center of a tidal wave that is coming and then just ride the wave. That's, that's the way we do it. Well, I mean, fascinating, but those are many different verticals. So, I mean, to to the point here, manufacturing isn't one vertical, right? Because everybody manufactures. At the end of the day, if you have a product, you have to manufacture it. So how do you stay on top of so many different areas and, and revolutions? You, you, you know, I'm assuming you have a, a bit of an ecosystem here to, to tap into. And you said you're very bottom-up, so you go out to factories and just see what their problems are. But, but medtech is... A regulated industry, food, you know, to some extent, well, space, these are complicated industries. Yeah. There's a reason why there were no startups in those spaces, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. of them capital intensive, others just re- regulatorily yes. uh, prohibitive. Yeah. So, for example, we launched, we launched uh, something dedicated to, to MedTech, and it was one of the few spaces that made the cut because it was not regulated. And so, uh, as you said, we are very bottom up. So we are witnessing all of those, but we are always grounded on the shop floor. And if it's true in more than 70% of sites, then it's true. And it's, it's sometimes an infuriating hygiene to have because we see things and we are so excited. And then we go, yeah, but it's like, it's 6% of factories. <laughs> so we can go there yet. And, and so, uh, is an hygiene that we sometimes we challenge and we say, should we, should we like launch a moonshot that is like true in 3% of factories today, but we think it can be true in 50% of factories. But today we don't. Today we don't. Uh, and so that kind of answers the question. We don't stay on top of everything. It, and if someone can stay on top of everything, please give, give me, give me the number. Uh, I need to make a call. Uh, so we are very bottom up and witnessing all of that and, and trying to make sense of that, that that big, big change. Talking about big change, I want to bring us back to Tesla. And there's a reason why, because I believe your co-founder or your collaborator yeah. you know, wrote a book called The Tesla Way. And you alluded to Tesla not just being sort of disruptive in the way that many people look at it and they say, well, you know, Tesla and it's Elon Musk and he just does stuff that other people don't do. What I found new about the way you're thinking about it, and I'm assuming I haven't read the book yet, I will, is that you're thinking about it more as a wave change type of way to look at conducting the manufacturing business interweaving digital but 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 in a fairly unique way can you um give me a sense because you you told me earlier as we were prepping you said in 10 years we will see teslism so i think that's what you know you guys have been coining as what toyota did for the world 30 years ago and you you previously said well you know toyota took like 10 years 20 years and then the whole world was doing lean or they were trying to and we're still trying because it wasn't that easy to implement but anyway 
What is this aspect of Teslaism or Teslaism that you think is so revolutionary? Because surely it's not just generally digital. Because digital, in a basic sense, yeah. a lot of people feel like they know what it is. Yes, it's revolutionary, but it's been around. What is it specifically that you are so excited about around, I guess, Tesla or the model that Tesla is, uh, you know, is signaling? I think I think there are, there are two main components about Teslism. One is product thinking. Uh, when you design a manufacturing physical product as a tech guy, you design it very differently than a non-tech guy. Um, before Tesla, for example, there was Nest. You know Nest, those cameras that you could put uh, on your front door. When they created Nest, they shipped the first version with 10 sensors, 10 different sensors. The V1 of the software was using one sensor. But there were nine other sensors of like red light, temperature, blah, 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 that were not used. But what they said is, we can remote software updates and we have future wheels, maybe, of those, and we'll see. And we can configure it later. That's the tech way of seeing the physical world. The physical world is something to be configured by a software. The obvious thinking in that for Tesla is that Tesla is not a car. Tesla is a computer on wheels. And so when Tesla had a brake issue, like a manufacturing brake issue, they solved the brakes issue with a software update. They are the only car company in the world able to solve a brake issue with a software update because they thought the product as a platform for configurability by software. And that is what fundamentally changed because everybody talks about digital, but digital has always a physical component behind your computer, my smartphone, and those are thoughts like platforms that are for the software to be used. And so when you think a car like a platform for the software to be used, you design it very differently from BMP. <laughs> so that's the first part, which is the product in itself as a platform for software to be used. And that's fundamentally different. It can be used for anything. Like think of a door. What would you do if you say that a door must be softwareized and remotely configured by software. It's, it's a very different way of thinking of DAW. <laughs> so that's the first part, product. The second is organization. I have two quotes from Elon Musk. The first one is, at scale, any production issue is a data issue. So it has to do with configuration, with data usage and everything. Like find me one manufacturing one manufacturing executive thinking like that. <laughs> not yet. It will happen. Not yet. So that's first. First quote. And I have another quote of Elon Musk who said, "The most important is not the machine; it's the machine that builds the machine." And so what it means is that Elon Musk is spending more time on designing the machine that makes the machine and thinking of it like a product that has software configuration that can be remotely operated. He spends more time thinking of that 
than the actual products. Which is yeah, so I have a fascinating example of that, Renaud, because if you think about Neuralink, right, so where he's yeah. in, you know, inserting chips into uh, now uh, pigs' brains, but eventually people, he is spending a, an enormous amount of time building a robot that can, can you know, take uh, the surgery required because yeah. they figured out that the surgery wasn't so easy for humans to actually you know, attach all those uh, you know, very, very tiny wires into the brain. So they're actually spending an enormous amount of time building the machine that actually builds the thing. And, so. and, and the thing is that if you think like a, like a technologist and a San Franciscan technologist, because one of the few secrets <laughs> is that, unfortunately in Europe, we have a lot of digitalists. Those are the people who are slaves of the people who make the platforms. And they are just doing a tiny fraction of the of the value on top of the true rulers of the world who make the platforms. A true technologist in San Francisco says, I want to build the next platform. Right? That's why Facebook investing half of its revenue on AR, VR. That's why Elon Musk spends so much time designing Tesla and the superchargers and the machine that makes a machine as a platform. And then it'll open up a lot of the ecosystem. Like you'll have open source designs that we can plug on your Tesla. It doesn't give a damn because he, he owns the platform. He owns the transform the transportation platform, which is quite a thing. And and this this type of thinking in tech, well, it has to permeate industry yet. <laughs> Well, to that point, the European Commission, I believe it's one of the commissioners, they have gone you know, crazy on startups like four times in the history of the European Commission to, to your uh, idea. And by the way, I have w worked there as a, a junior person, so I'm not, this is not going to be my uh, end note being negative on Europe. But th there was a statement this year where they said, oh, Europe should have five unicorns, Europe, Europe should have 50 unicorns by the time, and then they gave various deadlines. How wise is that sort of thinking? I mean, to announce that we're going to set the target of unicorns, what, what is it going to take for European tech and innovation thinking to, to start matching and surpassing even, if possible, this sort of I, mindset that you experienced in San Francisco? Or, that, or is that even not the target? I mean, is that even a wrong target to start saying, oh, we're going to build all these platforms and you know, is that even the right target? I think there are two data points. The first one is that the, the GAFAMs are so big that you can now build several billion dollar companies on top of their platforms. But they are still the ones choosing where the value gets distributed. Um, for example, Shopify has two one billion dollar company on top of their ecosystem. Um, the ones ruling the world are the ones who own the platform. So that's first. First data point. The second data point is China. China has a very long-term view and a, and a very interesting take on that. And they refused to let any of the platforms enter the ecosystem. And they created the platforms and they are battling with the US platforms. And now 
touching the waters on, on whether they, they should penetrate the European markets. In Europe right now, we have zero platforms. We lost the, the GAFAM type internet to 3.0. We, we lost that battle. It's lost. Okay. What are the new battles? Manufacturing. Um, blockchain decentralized. Uh, like there are several platforms to be created, to be written. And I think while it's important to have billion dollar companies here in Europe, if only we could have one or two platforms that would even out the battle. The thing is that today the people able to do it and the capital needed to build those kind of platforms. Um, well, we're getting there. Not yet, but we're getting there. And there are things coming our way. So, so I'm, I'm an optimist. So we're going to make it. Well, it's, it's fascinating to talk about these things. It seems uh, certain that you, uh, traveling the world, have come up with something. And uh, I am uh, fascinated by these nine ventures, by your thinking. And I, uh, and I think we should stay in touch. It looks like you will be creating new companies every month here. And uh, <laughs> who knows what you guys will come up with. So I, I thank you so much for, for sharing with us. And, uh, you know, we shall see what the future holds. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lots of fun. You have just listened to episode 45 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trunar Nunheim. The topic was the startup studio for manufacturing. Our guest was Reynald de Villiers, CEO at OSS Ventures. In this conversation, we talked about building European digital manufacturing startups. My takeaway is that digital manufacturing is coming of age, both in the US and Europe, and collaboration between corporations and startups has never been more intense. By combining the best of both worlds, industrial tech will make leaps forward, but the emerging system is still fragile. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 40, Israel Meets New England on Industry 4.0, episode 18, Transforming Foundational Industries, or episode 5, Plug and Play Industrial Tech. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.